Well, hello, Christ Chapel, and hello to all of you joining us at all of our campuses, including the Internet Campus, obviously, West, South, Converge. Uh, so glad that you're a part of the Christ Chapel family. Uh, I feel like we've all been energized with a little bit uh, of hope lately. When I woke up this morning, it was 66 degrees, and everybody has, yeah. You can certainly celebrate that, praise God. It gives us hope that there is a God and we're not just gonna suffer the Texas heat uh, forever. There's gonna be a change of season and we're all uh, thankful for that. Okay, I wanted to ask you if you've heard this phrase before, my guess is that you have, that it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. Have you heard that before? I heard that this weekend from my wife. I hear it from my wife uh, very often that, Cody, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And I, I think many of us ha have heard that. In fact, there was a UCLA study that was done. And in this study, they said in any gev given interaction or presentation that your words matter only 7% of what is communicated. 7% are just your words. 55% are your gestures, and then your tone is 38%. Your words are 7%. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Now, I know you don't believe the science, but let me just go back and tell you and give you an everyday example of how this works out in your life because uh, I'll just use a personal example. Jen comes in, we're gonna go to an event, it could be a dinner, it could be church, it could be anything, and she goes, does this look nice? And I don't look and I say yes. Now that's the right answer. Doesn't matter if I look or not, it's the right answer, okay? So I say yes. Now what we do if there's a, a, some sort of fracture in that communication is if she asks the question again, we go, oh, maybe she didn't hear the answer. She says, does this look nice? And we just repeat ourselves, yes. She doesn't get what she's looking for, so she asks again. And we think the answer is just get louder, yes. She obviously doesn't hear it again. And so then the strategy is we turn it on the other person. And she says, does this look nice? And I said, is there something wrong with your ears? Like, don't you hear me? I said, yes. It doesn't matter what you say, it matters how you say it. And just by the way, uh, ladies, you're not off the hook because when guys, or let me use a personal example. When I asked Jen, Jen, are you okay? I'm fine. <laughs> are you sure? What does she do? She repeats herself, I'm fine. I say, are you sure? She gets even louder, I am fine. Right? We all follow these same patterns and I asked her the last time and then it just gets into a full blown out fight. Okay, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Now what you say matters, 7%, but it's gotta be reinforced with the other things, with the gestures with the tone, with all of those other things that surround that communication. What if the same is true about our spiritual lives? What if? What if it's not just what you believe, but how you live out your beliefs? It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. It's not just that you do the right thing, 
It's that you do the right thing in the right way. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So if you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're gonna continue our series called Undivided. And last week, uh, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week, which was 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Jonathan did a great job uh, talking to us about spiritual gifts. That if you are a believer, once you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he gives you a divine, supernatural, spiritual gift that is beyond anything natural in this world. And the reason why he gives that to you is so that you can serve the body. And the body is whole and complete when everyone is using their spiritual gift in order to serve the body. Because if you're not using your gift, then the body is not fully functioning. That was Jonathan, the essence of Jonathan's message last week. So these gifts were given to the body in order to unify us, in order to draw us together. But those gifts that God gave us to unify us were actually dividing the church in Corinth. And the reason why is because they didn't like the gift they got. Well, I wanted that gift. I wish, I wish you had gotten my gift and I had gotten your gift. I want something different. Oh, yours is better than mine. Or if they were so bold, and many of them would say, as we're gonna to see today, mine is better than yours. And those gifts were dividing the church when they were meant to serve the church. They were meant to serve one another. And so that's why at the end of chapter 12, as Paul describes what these spiritual gifts are and what they're for, their purpose, he says, I want you to use your spiritual gifts. But then he has this interesting phrase here at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So he says, I want you to use your gift, but I'm gonna show you the way I want you to use your gift. And it's actually a more excellent way way. And that word that's used there for excellence, it's kind of interesting. It's actually the Greek word where we get the word hyperbole. It means it extends beyond even what is realistic. You go, this is realistic to use my spiritual gift. He goes, no, there's even a more excellent way to do it. Because it's not just that you use your spiritual gift, it's how you use your spiritual gift. And we get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is oftentimes referred to as the love chapter of the Bible. Chances are this is a very familiar verse to you. And if you've been to 10 weddings, then you've probably heard this 12 times. This is always read at a wedding, which is awesome. And I love that couples want this to be read at their wedding and want this to be the foundation for their marriage, but this passage is not about marriage. Some of you are like, wait, we read that at our wedding. It's okay, <laughs> it wasn't heretical. I'm just telling you the context that this passage is in, in loving one another, yes, certainly relates to believers, but it relates to the body of Christ and how we're supposed to treat one another because Paul wanted them to not just use their spiritual gift, but to use it in a loving way. So what I wanna do is explain the loving way that he lays out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if it's a familiar passage to you, 
hang on. I think there's still some new things that Lord willing you might see today. And then I wanna ask a question. As we unpack this, a very introspective question for you to evaluate yourself. Because when we talk about love, love is a, it's a very abstract concept. And so when we talk about doing things in love or, or in a loving way, um, we're really trying to check our motives. And motives are hard things for me to ascribe to you, but they're things that you can evaluate yourself. So we're gonna go through, I'll explain what it is, and then I'll ask you a very introspective question for you to evaluate yourself. But here's what I hope that you see, and this is the, the first point, and this is really the big idea that I want you to get from the day, from what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is this. A life lived for God cannot be devoid of love for others. A life lived for God cannot be devoid of love for others. You see, that was the problem going on in the Corinthian church. It wasn't that they weren't using their spiritual gifts, is that they weren't using it in a loving way. And Paul is going to tell them that that is futile. It's futile to try to live for God without loving one another. Those must go together. If you look at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, you'll see it. Look at it. It says, if I speak, now obviously this is hypothetical. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, that sounds super spiritual, but I don't have love, then I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I even have prophetic powers, again, super spiritual, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to even move or remove mountains, but I don't have love, then I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I even deliver up my body to be burned at the stake as a martyr, but I don't have love, then I gain nothing. And we'll stop right there. See, Paul brings up these spiritual gifts that he had talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the, the, the ones he brings up are particular uh, for a couple of reasons, which I'll explain as we go throughout here. But these are super spiritual gifts and he's saying that the reason why you have these spiritual gifts is so that you can love one another. Now remember, what is the purpose of the spiritual gifts? It's to serve the body. That's the essence of love, is service. I mean, remember, even Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. That's the, defi that's the definition that Jesus gives to love, and we know that God is love. So the definition he has is serving here, but what the way that they were using their spiritual gifts were not serving one another, they were serving themselves. They were self-serving, they were using their gifts to serve for their ego, their reputation, their image is what they were doing. And if you look at these gifts, I'll explain how. So the gift of tongues, as we know from, uh, especially on the day of Pentecost, the, the word there is uh, used for a particular language. So God gave a gift to a person, back, especially back in those times, 
where they could speak a different language in order to communicate the gospel, to communicate the good news. So the good news of Jesus would transcend one language. That was the gift of tongues. Now, if somebody started just speaking in a different language, you knew that they didn't know that language, you'd go, that's pretty cool. Like that, that's super, super spiritual. So he mentions that one. Then he mentions another one, prophetic powers. That is to reveal things about God. And you think about how important that is in the Corinthian church, because don't forget context here. They don't have the New Testament. We have the New Testament today. They didn't have the New Testament then. So these, I have a new revelation from God. That's a big deal. You'd go, that person's super spiritual, right? I mean, they're, they're speaking for God. And then you have the super spiritual one that gives away everything that they have. They're, they're a martyr. They're the one who leaves everything, who forsakes everything, who gives everything away and then says, I'll even be burned at the stake. I mean, people that make those kind of sacrifices in our world today, you go, man, they love God. That is super spiritual. These, these were the super spiritual gifts that he raises up. But the problem was they were using it not to glorify God, but to bring attention to themselves. And that's what we get. And, and, and I'll, uh, well, let, let me back up because he says, he uses the analogy of, of what that actually does uh, inside of the church. He says, if you use these gifts, but you don't use them in a loving way, to serve one another, that means serving another person by telling them the good news in their language. That means giving them a revelation that helps them in their life or giving away everything for their sake, not just to make yourself look good. He says, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which is kind of a, a weird analogy, but I wanna take you back to, to these times. Back in those times, there were temples for idols or gods, of, of that time. And what people would do as they entered the temple, as they entered into this place of worship, is they would hit this gong or cymbal. And what it was really meant to serve two particular purposes during that time. First, it was meant to rouse or awaken whichever God you were going in to worship. Odd. But it was meant to rouse them. Wake up, God, I'm here to worship you. I idol or whomever. The second thing it was meant to do was to draw attention to yourself of, hey, idol, I'm here. Look at me. So it's not just to wake them up, but it's to draw attention to yourself. Now, can you imagine, not that you would be an idol worshiper, but just think about this for a second. This is how my weird Cody brain works. But think about if you're trying to worship in that temple and somebody's hitting that gong, gong, and you're like, whoa, you know, you were praying or whatever. You know, gong, gong, gong. How distracting would that be? Well, that's how distracting it was in the early church as they were using their gifts, not in a loving way. They were distracting people away from God, trying to draw attention to themselves. In fact, that is what First uh, Corinthians chapter 14 is about. It's about disorderly worship. And you say, why is he bringing up disorderly worship in chapter 14? It's because they weren't serving God by serving one another. They were just using their gifts to draw attention to themselves. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, and you can look at it in the Bible, but uh, the scripture will come up here. 
as they're all trying to use these different gifts in one worship service, he says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn. Each one has a lesson. Each one has a revelation. Each one a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up of the body. For the building up of, of the reputation of Christ. You see, what Paul is saying here is, you're all coming together and you're stepping on each other. Wait, I have a hymn, and hey, you guys start listening to me. Let's start singing this hymn. Uh, uh, uh. Wait, I have a revelation over here. No, look, hey, everybody, look at me. This is what happens when you live with a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Daddy, look at me, look at me, look at me. And you start looking over there. Hold on, hold on. No, Dad, look at me. No, Dad, Dad, I want to tell you what happened in my school today. My, my best friend told me this, and my teacher told me that. And they, no, Dad, 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 look over here. Now, who ends up fighting with whom in that situation? I don't end up fighting with them. Who does my nine-year-old end up fighting with? It's my five-year-old. The kids fight against each other because they're fighting for attention, because they're not loving one another. They're not deferring to each other, saying, you know what? You tell the story, and then I'll wait for my turn, and I'll tell my story. You see, that's what was going on in their worship services, which is why you go, why is he addressing disorderly worship? Because they were all fighting against each other to be heard, to be seen, to be recognized. And it was causing a lot of confusion. In fact, in 14 verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 33, he says, God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. You see, there's supposed to be order to our worship. There should be love and deference that we're allowing people to use their gifts to glorify God and serve one another. And it's something I love about our church and even in front of the curtain, proverbial, and behind the curtain, I really do feel like everybody, we really do defer to one another's gifts and say, you know what? You're the best person to do that, not me. You should go and use your, this would be far more effective, far more God glorifying for you to use, you do it. Doesn't matter who gets the credit because you know what, in our church, our goal is who gets the credit is Jesus Christ. That's what matters is he gets the credit. No person because our gifts are his anyway. It's just are we using them and arranging them in a way that God gets the most glory that's the goal, and that's what he was admonishing them to do, not only in 13 and 14, but in order to do that, it takes love. It takes loving each other to do what's best for them, to speak to them in a way that is best for them, or to defer, to allow them to use their gifts, not so that it builds up your ego, but so that they can serve God. If there's not love in service, there's incongruity, which leads to my question. Is your love for others congruent with your love for God? Is your love for others congruent with your love for God? I think we, at some time in our lives, whether you are a believer or not a believer, you can uh, recall someone to your mind right now from some time in your life who called themselves a Christian but who came across as very unloving to you. 
who was rude, who was condescending, who uh, was uh, always trying to make it about them, who was self-righteous, those kind of things, and you go, man, you tell me you love God, but I don't feel like you love God. You see, living for God cannot be devoid of love for others. You can't say you live for him and don't love his people. People created in his own image. That, that, that's, that's incongruous. And, and I'll tell you, there's a perfect example of a group of people who try to live like this, and that was the Pharisees. The Pharisees lived for God. They, they tithed a tenth of, of their, their mint, their root, down to the, the smallest things. They go, we're doing this for you, God. And who was Jesus opposed to vehemently? <laughs> the Pharisees. Why? Were they living for God? Yes. Were they loving others? No. They were heaping burdens onto people. They were self-righteous to the point where, don't forget, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Remember when uh, they come, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they go, and he tells them, hey, there's going to be a day when you're going to come to me and you're going to say, wait, 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 didn't we do all these great things for you, God? And he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, on that day, I will tell you, depart from me, I know you not. I do not know you. You said you were living for me, but you didn't love other people, which causes me to question, do you really know God and are you known by him? And just so you know that that's not an anomaly, we talked about this kind of verse, the same verse, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. When he talks about though, in fact, I wrote it down. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He's known by him. How are we known by him? By our love for God, yes, but also our love for other people. Because see, his love for us changes us. It transforms us. And we should begin to look like he does. And does God love people? Wow, that's a stunner. Does God love people? Yes, thank you. You are awake. He does love people. And if he's transforming my heart, shouldn't I love people? I mean, I know I'm asking simple questions here. You're like, is this one of the deep questions? No. Okay. The introspective one is, is your love for others congruent with your love for God? We don't want to go out there and say, I live for God. And somebody go, but you don't, you don't love me. You see, this goes back to that. Uh, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. And something that someone has told me, uh, I'll never forget, is they said, Cody, people might forget what you say, but they will never forget how you make them feel. That is so true. And I am, I am not pandering something that is void of truth. I'm not talking about love and tolerance and let's just all get along. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying if Jesus, truth embodied, came and made people feel loved and he's transforming us to look like him, how do we not come across as loving? 
Remember, what is, the, what is the first commandment? When those Pharisees came and asked Jesus, man, can you sum up the law? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But hey, but he tags on a second one, doesn't he? You remember this. But the second one is like it. It goes together. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can say we live for God and we love God all we want. But it's not, how you say, it's not what you say. It's how you say it. It's how you say it. Are we saying it in a loving way? See, they weren't loving one another in the way that they were serving each other or using their gifts. It was incongruent. And the only place that that love can come from is God himself. You see, the love you give to others looks like the love you've received from Christ. And I know... I know that sounds kind of weird, and I want to explain that. But the love that you give to others looks like the love you receive from God. I told you, love is very abstract. It's hard to define, although it's easy to describe. We, we, we know how to describe love. Hard to define, easy to describe. And he describes it here as he goes throughout uh, chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. This is the passage that might sound familiar to you. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the kind of love that every person wants to be loved with. This is the one. This is, this is the ideal. This is the picture. This is the goal. And what's interesting about this is he describes all of these things about love. The way he describes this love are all in verbs. Isn't that interesting? It's because love is an action. It's not just a statement. I, I love you. Okay, can you show me? Can, 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 you, can you work that out? Be, can, can you be patient with me? Can you be kind with me? Can, can you not keep a record of my wrongs? Because I've got plenty of them. But can you live that out? See, love is an action. Love is a verb, and that's how he describes it here. And actually, the word that he uses for love is agape, which is the, the kind of love that describes God's love for us. It's this unconditional kind of love. It's not the eros, passionate love. It's not the phileo, friendly kind of love. This is the love that transcends, the agape kind of love which is why you could go throughout this passage and every time you see the word love, just replace it with Christ or Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus, in fact, that's one of the exercises on the back of your sermon notes for you this week so that you can meditate on that to know what God is like. Because here, here's the, the conviction that I have come to as I look at my love in my life, that if I am not patient 
and kind, if I'm envying someone or I'm boasting about something, if I'm arrogant or rude, then I am deficient. I am low in God's love for me. I need to go back to him and go, okay, God, I am not loving this person the way that you love me. Let me go back. How do you love me? Because this is how he loves us. And that love is possible for other people. You see, that's why I said up here, the love you give to others looks like the love you've received from Christ. If you're not loving others, maybe you don't know how loved by God you are. Because that changes us, that transforms us, that changes our hearts as he conforms us into the image of Christ. And we're therefore in step with the Spirit and governed by the Holy Spirit, which by the way, guess what Galatians chapter five says about the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What does it start off with? Love. That's when we're in step with the Spirit. Being the people that God is transforming us to be, conformed into the image of Christ, we are loving people. We're patient people. Remember, that's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's right here. We're kind to people. That's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's right here. You see, this is the kind of love he calls us to love one another with, but that love is divine. It only comes from God, and that's why we've got to accept it ourselves. So one of the questions I want to ask you is, is your love for others contingent on their love for you? If if, if the love that God calls us to give to others is this agape, unconditional love that comes from God, that takes the lead, that initiates love, is my love contingent upon the love of someone else? You know, one of the phrases that uh, dominates our society, especially in our secular world, is you scratch my back, I scratch yours. That is, uh, you do something for me first, and then in return, I'll do, I'll do you a favor. And that's, that's not Christ-like. He, does, he, he didn't say, all right, earth, humankind, You clean yourselves up and start living in a godly way and then I'll come to you. Remember, God demonstrated his love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Is there a relationship in your sphere of influence right now where God is asking you to take the lead in love or where you're waiting for them to scratch your back before you scratch theirs? See, love takes the lead. That's the way that God interacted with us and that's the way he calls us to interact with one another. But that's a mature view. And that's why he ends with this more excellent way of love matures us to live for what lasts. The more excellent way of love matures us to live for what lasts. If you look at verses eight to 13, he's gonna point out love is what lasts beyond anything else. He says, love never ends. Now, think about this. Why does love never end? Because what does 1 John say? God is love. Love never ends. 
Because God never ends. He's eternal. As for prophecies, the things you were boasting about, the things you were saying, look at me, look at me, as for prophecies, well, they're going to pass away. Or the word there is fade away. As for tongues, they will cease. We are cessationists. We believe that that gift of tongues, of being able to speak in that other language, that gift that is given to one particular person has ceased, and it ceased with the apostles until the time where we got a New Testament that could therefore be distributed. Those will cease. As for knowledge, he goes back to the other verb, it will pass away or it will fade. For we know in part as we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, we reveal as much as we know about God. But when we get to see Jesus face to face, then that partial stuff's gonna pass away. You see, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up those childish ways. See, for now, right now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we're gonna see him face to face. And when we see him face to face, we won't need prophecy. We won't need those things. Those will fade away. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's that being known by God again. So now faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these, the more excellent way, is love. And that's how he ends. The better way, the more excellent way, is love. Those other things, those are going to pass away. Those gifts will fade away. Tongues will cease. Those things will, will pass because gifts were given for a time period to help build up the church. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. The gifts are given to build up the bride of Christ. And then once the bride meets the, the groom, we don't need those, those gifts anymore because we see him face to face. And that's what he's calling us to. But this love remains and he's calling us to a maturity to say, let's live for what, what lasts. Let's, let's make priority the things that will go on forever, the things that will be permanent and when I was thinking about this, it, I, I, it just, it, it made me wonder, do we treat people like we'll live with them forever? Like if you knew that we were going to be roommates forever, you're like, oh no. Or the person sitting next to you, or the person sitting behind you. Would we treat them differently? You know, I, I, I've heard this just a, a handful of times throughout my life. But people treat another person some way and they say, well, I'm never gonna see them again. You know? And it, it's, it's almost like an excuse. We will see each other again. And praise God for that. We will live together with Jesus for eternity. I want it to be pleasant. And I think that's the more mature view that he's talking about here, is treating one another in a way that we're gonna live together forever. That's why love lasts. Prophecies, they'll cease. Knowledge, wisdom, those things, those things will pass away because we're gonna see the perfect face to face. 
But love remains. Love is what lasts. That abides. And that's how, that should undergird how we live together. Not just that we're doing the right things, but that we're doing the right things in the right way. So here's my last question for you. Is your view of what lasts challenging you to love people more? If, if love really is what lasts, does that challenge you to love people more? First John chapter four, which is a great passage that is complementary to what Paul is saying here, says, you cannot say you love God and hate your brother. You can't. If you don't love your brother or sister whom you do see, how can you love God whom you do not see? It's incongruent. Living for God cannot be devoid of love for others. Love is an action. It's something you live out. It's something we practice. It's not just what we do. It's how we do things. And so what we're gonna do at all of our venues right now is we're gonna, after I pray, we're gonna move into a time where we're gonna commission our new leadership for this next year. Those who say they want to put God's love into action in a very formal way. We're super thankful for them. And so let me pray for us and then we're gonna commission uh, our leaders. God, uh, we do thank you that you loved us first. In fact, you tell us that in scripture, that the only way that we can love is if we're first loved by you. We love because you first loved us. You are the model. You're the empowerer of our love for one another. And so Lord, I pray that that would undergird everything that we do, how we see one another, how we treat one another, how we talk to one another. May our way of life as we understand the way you've loved us, challenge us to love one another with that same kind of love. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.